would like to read this evening beginning in verse 1 down through the middle of verse 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadad, and Amimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now this morning we read the entire uh, genealogy all the way down through verse 17, and I asked this, the question this morning, do you have trouble appreciating the genealogies in the Bible? There's always the temptation to want to hurry ahead and to skip ahead to get to the, quote, important parts of the Word of God. And as I mentioned this morning, all Scripture is given by the Spirit of God and is profitable. And I want us this evening to see if we can be instructed by this part of the Word of God and to learn to appreciate even more every word that God has given us. Let me begin by making a, a brief comment about ancient genealogies. We might ask the question, I don't know if you think this way, I think questions like this sometimes. We might ask the question, how did they know that? When you read the genealogies in the Bible, when you read this genealogy, or you go to Luke chapter 3 and the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is traced all the way back to Adam, and do you ever wonder, how, how do they have that list? How do they know those things? Especially when the people are obscure people or when the genealogies go so far back in time. Well, if you go to the local register of deeds today, you'll find records of all property ownership, birth certificates, marriage license, death certificates, and many other things. They are called vital statistics. Family trees and family lines were vital statistics in ancient Israel, and there were techniques used to, pro to protect against the insertion or the deletion of names from these records. For the most part, biblical genealogies are based on carefully maintained written records. Now, some of the ancient records were certainly maintained by oral tradition, but for the most part, these genealogies are actually, are actually come to us from from written records. You will remember that in the law, the actual soil of Canaan was given over to definite tribes and families. Look with me at Joshua chapter 14. Joshua 14, the first five verses. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their, inherit, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had, had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. 
For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph there were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And so all of the land of Israel was divided up among the tribes. And so if you were in a particular uh, tribe or if you were in a subgroup in a tribe, you were given a specific place, a piece of real estate that belonged to your family, your tribe in the larger group and then in smaller groups, your particular family. Now this was extremely important to the life of the nation. Now, we're woefully ignorant of the Sabbath principle in the Scriptures and, and how it is at work in many ways in God's world, but it was much, much more than the Sabbath day and going to church on Sunday. One application of the Sabbath principle to society was the Jubilee year. Every 50th year, there would be a year that was called Jubilee. There were 49 years, seven sevens of years, Followed by, followed by the 50th year, which was a year of new beginnings. And by the way, Pentecost happens in the Christian church based on this principle. But Jubilee deals largely with land and property and property rights. The year of Jubilee required the compulsory return of all property to its original owners or their heirs. Property may have been sold during the 49 years since the last Jubilee, or it may have been lost, like in bankruptcy. All kinds of things could happen to property. But in the 50th year, it was returned to the original families that it had been given to. You can see how extremely important that would be for the life of any family. If I'm in poverty and I can make it to the 50th year, I'll receive back all of the property that belongs to my tribe and to my family. So property, uh, so property uh, was, was extremely important to the economy, the well-being of the people. And in order to recover in the year of Jubilee, these family possessions, the claimant had to prove his legal descent. And so if we go all the way back to when the people first come into Canaan, it was necessary for them to know who each piece of land, each property belonged to, just like we have our record uh, in the Register of Deeds today. It was absolutely necessary for there to be a careful, accurate accounting of family lines and histories, and public records were kept for this purpose. When we talk about Ruth and Boaz, Boaz being a kinsman redeemer, how did they know who has the right to such a claim? A claim not just upon Ruth, but upon the property rights of her dead husband. Well, the genealogy, the genealogical records are uh, that they had would have established such claims and would have proven the rights of people in cases like that. So it was important to the economy and wealth and long-term stability of the tribes and families. There was also an important role that these records played in the spiritual life of Israel. The priests and Levites had to prove their legal descent in order to fulfill the, the functions of their respective offices. When they came back from the Babylonian captivity, there were people who claimed to be in the priestly tribes, but they were excluded from service because they could not prove their Levitical 
pedigree. Let me just give you one example. Ezra chapter 2 and verse 62. Ezra 2. In verse 62. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the, peace, from the priesthood as unclean. And so there were people who claimed to be priests, wanted to take up that office, but they couldn't prove from the written official records that they were in fact in those in the tribe of Levi so they were excluded Josephus appeals to the priestly registers and is proud of the royal descent of his mother and so he appeals to those official written records he shows that even the priests residing in Egypt had their sons registered officially in Jerusalem so as to safeguard their priestly rights and so even uh, priests that were living outside of the nation at the time of uh, Josephus, this would be in New Testament times, uh, they would uh, come to Jerusalem and, uh, and officially record their children so that their uh, offspring would be in the official record as being in the priestly tribes. And so we, when we ask the question, how did they know this? The answer is they carefully, legally, officially maintained these records from the most ancient times. Now, I want us to look at seven lessons that we can learn from this genealogy in, uh, in just the opening verses of this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. We looked at the five mothers of Christ this morning, but other lessons that we can learn. And the first is this, and that's why I want to tell you a little bit about where these genealogies come from. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes to us in the context of sober, real, well-established history. Jesus Christ is not a myth. Jesus Christ is not a nice story. When we read the accounts of Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we're reading about carefully maintained records connecting real people to this real person, Jesus the son of Joseph and Mary. And the Gospels attached to these real records, these genealogical records, and these real people are the careful historical records of the life and words of Christ. And so when Matthew begins his gospel in this way, he is giving us a firm, historical, factual foundation that connects Jesus and Joseph and Mary to the history and people of Israel. And I would suggest to you that everything Matthew does through the rest of his gospel is to be viewed by us in the very same way. It is sober history. Matthew is carefully and accurately recording the life and the words of the Lord Jesus. Why start the whole New Testament with these 17 verses? Well, there are many reasons uh, that we could suggest, but at least one reason is to establish right from the beginning that these accounts are real, they are history, they are as certain as the carefully preserved records of the people of God from ancient times. That's the reliability that we should approach the gospel <coughs> records with. A second lesson that we can learn from these genealogies. Matthew begins his gospel with two Greek words. And by using these two words, he makes a connection to something that is lost to us when we read, uh, when we read the first verse of this genealogy in English. The two words in Greek are biblos, genios, genios, geni, geni, 
can't say it right, Dionysios, Dionysios. We get these two, we get two of our English words from these words. Uh, the, we get our word Bible from Biblos and from, Gen- I'm going to say it right in a minute, Genesios, that's how you say it. Some of you Greek scholars could tell me, Genesios. Uh, we get our word Genesis from that. Now the word Bible or Biblos means writing or book or record. And then the word Genesis means source or origin or beginning. And the most obvious connection to these, wor- to these two words in, is the genealogy that follows in the, in the next verses in verse 18. If you look down at verse 18, it says this, Now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so there's a connection between verse 1 and verse 18. The word birth there is that same word, and that's our word, genesis. But I would suggest that Matthew has more than this in mind and that this is something that we miss as English readers. The Septuagint was the translation of the Greek Old Testament into, uh, was of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It was the same thing to the, to the people of New Testament times that our King James Version or our New American Standard or our ESV is to us. They didn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. They read the Septuagint. It was their common Bible of that day. These two words appear together twice in the Septuagint, and this is something that would have not been lost on Matthew's readers. These two words that begin Matthew's Gospel are two words that appear in the Septuagint, and they would know about these two verses. The two verses are Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. If you would turn back to Genesis with me, and let's just look at these two verses, Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. Genesis 2, 4 says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And if we were to read this in the Septuagint in the Greek uh, Old Testament that would have been the Bible of that day, it says that this is the Biblos, Genesios, of the heavens and the earth. And so we see this term. We see it again in, in Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is the Biblos Genesios of Adam. And so we have these two verses in the Septuagint, two well-known verses that begin with these words. And I would suggest that with these first two words of his gospel, Matthew is telling us that in the Christ there is a new beginning of all things. That Jesus Christ is the second Adam. With him there is a beginning of a new creation and a new humanity. With the Christ comes the recreation of all things. Now this is certainly a truth that is well taught in the scriptures. Paul tells us this very plainly. In Romans 5.12 he says, Sin came into the world through one man. And then in verse 15, If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. There is Adam that brings sin and death into the world. There is Jesus Christ that brings grace and life. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in all Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It will be Christ who restores all things. It is Christ who will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. It is Christ for whom the creation groans for as it waits uh, to be made new. These first two words bring in a wealth of doctrine and truth and hope connected to the Messiah that has come into the world. As we have the beginning of the heavens and the earth, and as we have the beginnings of man recorded for us in Genesis uh, with, uh, leading into those accounts with these two words. So we have Jesus the Messiah coming into the world and he is going to make all things new, a new world and a new humanity just as, the be- just as in the beginning. I would suggest to you that every word is important, every word valuable, every word precious, every word useful, every word, uh, a, every word beautiful. We are then told that Jesus is the Christ. So number three, third lesson that we can learn. We are then told that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one, and all the richness of this office is brought before us with this word. What does it mean to be anointed? What is the significance of it? Who in the context of Matthew's world are, are anointed persons? Well, it's the offices of prophet and priest and king, which are immediately connected to this one who is having this beginning at this point in history. They are the anointed ones in Israel. And he will take all these functions to himself. And so Jesus, as he comes into the world, he is the Christ, and he will be the prophet, priest, and king to God's people. But it is a new prophetic work, a new priesthood, a new kingdom. And that is what we are immediately brought to expect by this very first phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's just four words, but they are packed with a lot of spiritual doctrine and significance. A fourth lesson that we can learn. Note that immediately Matthew tells us something else about what it means to be the Christ. Besides the the obvious offices that are implied, there is more connected to the Christ. He is to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. We see that at the end of verse 1. He is saying more than that Jesus is descended from these two men. Note that the order is reversed in verse 1. The genealogy he's about to give is ordered from Abraham to Jesus. The thing that we're to think of when we see these two names in verse 1 is God's covenant with each of these two men. The Davidic covenant. A king will sit on your throne forever. A king that will protect and bless and cause God's people to prosper. In the Abrahamic covenant, all people will be blessed through your seed. Our understanding of the Christ cannot be separated from covenant promises. Things long ago promised are now coming to fulfillment. Jesus is the beginning of all things being made new. Yes, that is true, that all things are being made new in this one that's coming in the world. But these new things cannot be separated from what God has always been working toward and doing throughout the entire history of the world. 
In Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me just make a little side comment. I've been stumbling over my verses a little bit. I have switched from my New American Standard to the ESV. And it doesn't look like it's supposed to. (laughs) And so bear with me if I do that, because that is why. In these verses in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, we're told that Christ is our shepherd and we are his sheep. The promised shepherd is here. But all of this happens in the context of what is described here as the eternal covenant. Now, in Matthew's day, it was a fair question to ask. Where is the Davidic king? What has happened to his throne? And what what has happened to the promises that were made to David? 500 years have passed with no Davidic king in Israel. Matthew declares that this that in this person suddenly the tender mercies promised to David are fulfilled. Here is David's greater son, and in Matthew's gospel he will prove himself to be king by the things that he does and the things that he says. But there is more. He is also the son of Abraham. In him all the nations will be blessed. And in Christ all the nations of the world have been blessed. You remember in Genesis 15, 5, Abraham was told, and he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. That innumerable seed has been brought in by the Lord Jesus and his gospel. Not physical descendants to Abraham, but spiritual seed who, like Abraham, believe. Revelation 7, 9 says, A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the the Lamb. Here is that innumerable seed promised to Abraham that outnumbers the stars of heaven standing before the Lamb. 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, promises made long ago fulfilled. The covenant faithfulness of God breaks into this world in Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. When we become Christians, these covenant promises become ours. We are caught up in them and we are blessed by them and they are promises that are ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Promises to David, a thousand years in waiting. The promises to Abraham, two thousand years in waiting. Matthew declares them both fulfilled. A fifth lesson. When we come to verse 2, we are immediately confronted with another important doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of election. Now, birthright is the right which naturally belongs to the firstborn son. The birthright of the firstborn consisted of a double portion of what his father had to leave his family by way of inheritance. 
The land and flocks, which were the possession of the family as a whole, remained so after the death of the father. But the firstborn became the head of the family and thus took charge of the family property. He became responsible for the maintenance of the younger sons, the widow or widows that were in the family, and any unmarried daughters that were in the family. He also, as head, succeeded to a considerable amount of authority of, a, of authority over the other members of the family. And further, he generally received the blessing. You remember Jacob and Esau and the blessing, which was to place him in a close and favored covenant relationship with Yahweh. And when we look at our genealogy, we can ask the question, who is Abraham's first son? It's Ishmael. But what does verse 2 say? It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Who is Isaac's first son? What well, is Esau? But what does verse 2 say? Isaac, the father of Jacob. Who is Jacob's first son? It's Reuben. But what does verse 2 say? It says, Jacob, the father of Judah. Then we note in verse 3 the unusual statement. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Unusual not just because of the mention of, of Tamar, as we talked about this morning, but also by the mention of two sons. Why well, mention both of these sons, Perez and Zerah? Well, Genesis 38, 27 through 30 says this. Speaking of Tamar, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And so Perez, too, is technically the second born who moves ahead of his brother. See, so do you see a pattern here as we look at these genealogies? Now, this is the information that Paul is thinking about when he writes Romans chapter 9. So please turn with me there for just a moment to Romans chapter 9. Paul in this chapter is expressing his sorrow for the cutting off of ethnic Israel. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now their being cut off raises a very serious question. Have the promises of God failed? Note the statement in the, very, in the first half of verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And so Paul asserts here that the word of God has not failed that God has not failed to keep his promises. Now, how can Paul say that? Well, Paul's answer is that there are some who are only sons after the flesh and not part of the true Israel of God, but there are others, God's elect. These are the objects of his covenant commitments and promises. These are the ones blessed by God, never cut off, and toward whom the promises never fail. This is not something new in Paul's day. This is the way it is, has always been from the very beginning. 
Abraham's physical seed has always been treated in this way. And there are two kinds of Israelites, Israelites after the flesh and Israelites after the promise. But what is his basis for saying this? He says it based on the genealogies that we have before us, genealogies like in Matthew chapter 1. Look at verses 6 in the beginning of verse 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children are and not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so he draws from the, uh, from the fact that it is Isaac and not Ishmael that is the blessed one and the one that is a part of God's elect and God's people. And then in verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had, not done in, had, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And so Paul looks again at the genealogies and what's happened here with the descendants of these ancient people in Abraham's line, and he draws the conclusion that God confounds the natural order specifically so that it will be clear that it is what he does that makes the difference. Verses 15 and 16, he says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then in verse 18, so then he has mercy on, who, on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now look here in just a, a very few words of this genealogy at the doctrine that is laid before us if we have eyes to see it. The truth that God's election is more important than natural preference. Ishmael is the firstborn and has a tender place in his father's heart. In Genesis seventeen eighteen. It says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, but this is not to be. The second is to be preferred over the first. In human relations, the preeminence would go to the first, but in, but in divine election, it often goes to the second. God's election often runs contrary to natural expectations. Esau is the firstborn, and he's the one that is loved by his father. But it will be Jacob, the deceiver, and the scoundrel that will be the blessed one. Judah is the fourthborn, but he is the prominent one. And even then, it is not Judah who receives the double portion. It goes to the eleventh son, Joseph, and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And even with these two boys, the sons of Joseph, again, which of Joseph's two sons receives the greater blessing? It is Ephraim, the younger, that is preferred. Now this brings us to a sixth principle, which is related to God's choosing. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This text tells us it's not according to worldly standards. It's not according to the way we would do things. It's not the powerful. It's not the firstborn, the nobleborn. In this genealogy of the Lord Jesus, over and over again, it is not the preferred one who is the chosen one. God many times chooses what is low and what is despised. And when God takes Hagar and Rahab and Ruth, outsiders having no part in Israel, off in another world, worshiping other gods, this is literally taking things which are not to bring to nothing things which are. How did they ever end up among the people of God and in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ? His purpose is to close every human mouth, including ours, except to speak to glorify the God that chose us. Verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a humbling thing to realize that we have not been preferred because of some good thing in ourselves, but for reasons known only to God. Maybe even because he, we had nothing to commend us because we are lowly and have nothing to commend us to God, no good thing in us. It should help us to live humbly before God and with our brethren. You remember in Philippians 2.3 it tells us, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, I would suggest meditating on this genealogy and the principles that we see here will help us to do that. And then number seven, one final observation from these opening few verses. I want to draw your attention to some of the names that we really don't know anything about. Hezron, Ram, Amemadad, Nashon, Salmon. What can these names teach us? What good are these names if we don't know anything about these men? Well, I think there's a lesson for us here. No matter how obscure or insignificant a person may be in our eyes, each person has a role to play in redemptive history. Each link in the chain is important. Which one can be left out? If we remove any link from this chain, what happens? Not one of them can be removed. Every one of them matters. But here is the most important thing. Not that we know who they are or the particulars of their life. Not that we consider them to be the great ones or the obscure ones. The important thing is that God knows them all and he knows everything about them and they will never be forgotten by him. Many are unrecognized and unknown by the world, but they're remembered by God. Many are forgotten in the records of history, but they're not forgotten by God. 
Each person plays his role in redemptive history, and this ought to be a great comfort to us. The good shepherd of the sheep knows every one of his sheep by name, and all of our names have been recorded in the book of life. Even if not one person ever remembers anything about us at all, we are remembered there, and the record of our name in God's book will make us glad forever. He doesn't forget a single one. Every one of them are significant to him. Now, we don't know anything about these men, but God has their names recorded. He knows their significance, and he has laid up their names in heaven. Now, this is a most extraordinary thing, and it ought to, get, to be a great comfort to us day by day. He has called us each one by name. Our God will never forget us. The things that we do that seem so small and weak and ineffective and obscure, they are planned by God, given to us to do, necessary for God's redemptive work in this world. Where would David be without Hezron or Ram? Well, these are just a, some of the lessons that we can see in this genealogy. We've really only just looked at the first four verses, and I hope that you will agree that there are many rich things here. There are many other things in this genealogy. We don't have time to, to look through them tonight, but I would suggest that we remember this, that all Scripture is profitable, all Scripture is precious, and may God help us to love every word that He has spoken. Let's close with a word of prayer.